I would ask you this morning to take the infallible record of the Word of God and open it to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26. And this morning our text is in verses 69 through 75. Follow along as I read, beginning in verse 69 of Matthew 26. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a certain servant girl came to him and said, You too were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you are talking about. And when he had gone out to the gateway, Another servant girl saw him and said to those who were there, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. And a little later, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Surely you too are one of them, for the way you talk gives you away. Then he began to curse and swear, I do not know the man. And immediately a cock crowed. And Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said, Before a cock crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. This morning I've entitled my message to you, The Bitter Tears of Repentance. And before us today we have a riveting account of the power of temptation as well as the weakness of the flesh. The man who had confessed Christ as the Son of God now denies that he ever knew him. From the outset, I want to say that this ultimately will be a message of great encouragement to us all. Because in reality, we can all place our name in lieu of Peter's. His failure merely reflects our own. And anyone who is brutally honest with themselves will see numerous examples of similar denials in their life. Many Christians know what it is to weep over their sin. And those who do not remain in spiritual infancy, frolicking in the nursery of naivety and pride. And as we look at the text this morning, we see a sequence of events that really parallel the pathway of temptation for every saint who is named the name of Christ down through redemptive history. And I want you to keep something in mind before we examine the text. No Christian merely falls unexpectedly into sin. No Christian just kind of is walking through life and then all of a sudden stumbles into some grievous sin. But rather, there will always be secret sins that we pander and we savor in our heart that make us vulnerable to certain temptations. We all struggle with the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life. 
And those lusts tend to thrive in the privacy of our imaginations and even in our ignorance of Scripture. And of course, the enemy of our souls will provide a daily banquet table filled with delicious morsels of iniquity from which we can pick and choose to satisfy our lusts. And each of them are carefully designed to appeal to our lusts. And there are many for everyone. And when we, by God's grace, do choose rightly and decide not to eat of some of those deadly provisions, then the enemy's strategy tends to get much more aggressive and he cleverly sets snares in the well-worn paths of our life-dominating sins and our habitual weaknesses. Well, for Peter, his besetting sin was pride. He really saw himself as kind of the Lord's champion, kind of the, the choice warrior. Spiritual pride had really convinced him that he was invincible to defection, that he was unassailable by temptation. In fact, he had earlier boasted in Matthew 26, verse 33, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Yet he became a living example of 1 Corinthians 10:12. Let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. And as we look at the text this morning, and as we look specifically at Peter's besetting sin of pride, which really was his Achilles' heel, we will discover that his blind spot is very often very similar to ours. A blind spot in his evaluation of himself that made him exceedingly more vulnerable to certain kinds of temptation than he could have ever imagined he would be. But in this account, we will also see the marvelous work of grace, because here we will see God in his infinite love forgive a sinner who is truly broken over his sin. And because of Peter's heart wrenching repentance and his subsequent humility and godliness, Peter's private failures that were made public to all of us have become deeply encouraging a deeply encouraging testimony of restoration and blessing for those who truly repent. So this morning, after we examine the actual historical account of what happened in this shocking sequence of events, I believe the Holy Spirit would have us understand six crucial stages of temptation and sin that we all need to guard ourselves against if we're going to be victorious in this Christian life. So first, let's reflect a few minutes upon the overall context of this account. And then I want us to place ourselves in the courtyard of Caiaphas, the, the ruling high priest, and observe our, our brother's tragic defection and also later reflect upon his ultimate restoration. By now, it is the early morning hours of our Savior's crucifixion. He has been tempted three times by the devil in the Garden of Gethsemane. And in inconceivable agony, he has sweat drops of blood as he has contemplated the horrors of bearing the sins of the elect. And in an act of mockery and treason, 
The Satan man Judas has betrayed the God man Jesus with a kiss. As you will recall, the religious aristocracy of Israel raised over a thousand men to go and to arrest Jesus. And in the greatest act of premeditated injustice in the history of the world, where every conceivable principle of jurisprudence was violated, the Lamb of God, the innocent Lamb of God, was tried and convicted by wicked men. Jesus was first taken to Annas, who was kind of the godfather of the mafia of the religious elite there in Jerusalem, and then sent on to his son-in-law, who was the kind of the reigning high priest, along with all of the aristocratic cronies that were with him of the Sanhedrin. And then later he was eventually moved over to the Roman procurator Pilate, who then sent him to Herod Antipas, who sent him back to Pilate, who ultimately sent him to the cross. I remind you of the distinguished jurists' comments on the illegal conviction of Christ, Harvard professor Greenleaf He said, and I quote, throughout the whole course of the trial, the rules of the Jewish law of procedure were grossly violated and the accused was deprived of rights belonging even to the meanest citizen. He was arrested in the night, bound as a malefactor, beaten before his arraignment and struck in open court during the trial. He was tried on a feast day and before sunrise. He was compelled to criminate himself, and this under an oath of solemn judicial adjuration. And he was sentenced on the same day of conviction. In all these particulars, the law was wholly disregarded. I find it intriguing that the Holy Spirit of God has given us two accounts of spiritual defection, really side by side, committed by two kinds of disciples, one by an unregenerate apostate named Judas, who was a false disciple, compared to another disciple who was a truly regenerate disciple, Peter. Both disciples were following Christ, but loved their own lives more than the Savior. And both respond to their sin and sorrow. But you must understand the difference. Judas responded in sorrow over the misery of his life. He responded over shattered dreams. He grieved over unmet expectations and frustrated selfish ambitions. As well as the excruciating pain of an an accusing conscience. But for Peter, it was very different. Peter had sorrow over denying the one who he truly loved. He grieved over broken fellowship. He lamented over his foolish pride, over misplaced priorities and the unbearable weight of heartfelt conviction. Judas had a sorrow of regret, according to 2 Corinthians 7, which is called a worldly sorrow unto death. 
But Peter had a sorrow of repentance, according to the same text, a godly sorrow unto repentance, which is the appropriate response to any failure. Judas's tears were selfish tears. Peter's tears were selfless tears. For Judas, he wept over all that he had done in hopeless despair, knowing that he had willfully and deliberately and with full knowledge rejected the Savior's love and chose instead to live unto himself rather than to humbly submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. But Peter wept tears of genuine repentance, tears of, shall we say, hopeful and hope-filled remorse. He knew how deeply he loved the one who loved him in return. And I'm sure that he was comforted only by a confident hope of divine forgiveness and undeserved mercy. So here we have much upon which to meditate and apply to our lives. Many eternal truths are found in this chilling realism of Matthew's portrayal of that terrible night. Now, let's enter the scene ourselves as the Holy Spirit invites us in. We would really need to go to John 18. I'll not ask you to turn there, but in John 18, again, we are reminded that Jesus first is brought to Annas and then to his son-in-law Caiaphas. And since all of the wealthy families of that day typically just expanded their homes to accommodate the increase in growth for their families, probably what happened here is Jesus was just ushered down a corridor from Annas' specific area of living quarters in some palatial mansion, just ushered down the quarters to Caiaphas. And we read about this outside courtyard in which Peter entered. This was probably, therefore, within the same confines of Annas' Annas's, uh, palatial mansion. And by the way, this is still true today. Those that have in the, in the Near East... And in the Orient, they will still continue to build homes in such a way as to really surround a specific courtyard that is in the middle. And so the quadrangle of actual dwellings would surround the inner courtyards. And we can read in the Gospels that Peter comes up to the gate. He's not allowed to enter. But according to John 18, 16, uh, another disciple, and this was probably John even though we're not certain, but for a number of reasons we believe this was John, it says that another disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought in Peter. And so now Peter's inside and he's able to kind of see and hear what's going on with Jesus inside one of the rooms where all of the Sanhedrin and the high priest now gathered And so as we look at our text in verse 69, we read that Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a certain servant girl came to him and said, you too were with Jesus the Galilean. Now, it's important for you to understand that John describes this lady 
as a young damsel that, that was keeping watch at the porch entry. She was probably kind of a hostess, a greeter, but also at some level a guard. And Luke even indicates that it was a chilly night and they had kindled a fire in the courtyard. And folks were sitting around the fire and Peter was now sitting with them. And she said to him, you two were with Jesus, the Galilean. You've got to understand that the term Galilean was a term of derision, a, t- a condescending epithet often used by the Judeans, especially those in Jerusalem, to mock the ignorance and the lack of civility of those that lived to the north in the region of Galilee. It would be similar to people calling someone in our culture a redneck, white trash, whatever. That was the idea here. Well, obviously this caught Peter off guard, as temptation always does. And here in verse 69, and even again in verse 71, we see how easy it is for something small to topple something mighty. For in both cases, mere slave girls are used to utterly unnerve the proud disciple who once walked on water. And as I think about it, even as a microscopic organism can cause a strong man to literally collapse in debilitating weakness, so too the smallest and most unlikely source of temptation can bring down the mightiest of saints. And we must all remember that. Peter responded to the first slave girl in verse 70, I don't know what you're talking about. It's interesting that the other Gospels render a similar yet a bit different account of what she said, indicating that more than just one interchange may have taken place between them. And no doubt others were also intrigued with his identity, looking at him. In fact, in Luke twenty-two fifty-seven, Luke reveals that Peter also answered her saying, Woman, I do not know him. And in Mark fourteen sixty-eight, we read that he then went out onto the porch. Now, no doubt at this point, he is trying to get away from the people that are pointing their fingers and looking at him, people that are already incensed and hostile because of all that was going on. You know how mobs tend to thrive upon such hostilities. So he goes out to a safer place so that he could still hear and maybe see some of the proceedings, maybe a place where it was a bit darker in the shadows where he could conceal his identity. But according to verse 71 here, we read that another servant girl saw him and said to those who were with who were there, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. Luke 22:58 tells us that someone else also joined in saying, you are one of them, too. And then here in Matthew, in verse 72, we read that again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. Now, folks, you must understand that an oath here was really a a declaration of truth made in the presence of God. 
It's kind of like saying, God as my witness. I do not know this man. So Peter is now gaining momentum on the slippery slope of sin. His arrogant self-reliance has become his undoing. His confidence was in his inflated ego and his own opinion of his spirituality, not in the Lord. And so his strength was in his flesh, not in the Lord. So now he is without resources. And when you're without resources, very quickly, your courage will leave you. And so now he is scared, he's angry, he's trapped, he's desperate. And dear friends, when pride reigns in a person's heart, when that person's world begins to fall apart, all that will matter is self-preservation. There will be no thought of, I will confidently and quietly suffer for the Lord and share in His suffering. But rather for Peter, his was a man-centered world. Everything was revolving around him, not the Lord. He did not live in a God-centered world at this point. So Peter was learning a valuable lesson the hard way. And that lesson was simply this, that the cost of discipleship is really too high for those who are in love with themselves. So, with his Lord apparently helpless in the hands of his captors, Peter fears now for his own life, and yet he is torn by his desire to be devoted to Jesus, but too scared to confess him publicly. So he denies his relationship with Jesus and he even reinforces it by an oath. I do not know the man. Now, according to Luke 22 and verse 59, about an hour later, we read what happens here in Matthew's gospel in chapter 26, verse 73. It says, and a little while later, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, surely you too are one of them for the way you talk gives you away. You see, his Galilean accent and the Galilean syntax would be similar to the differing dialects that we would have even here in the United States. It's very easy for someone from Alabama to know that someone else might be from Boston and vice versa. The same type of dynamics going on here. So his brogue made it easy for the well-educated, sophisticated Judeans to identify where he came from. In John 18:26, we have something else added to the mix to understand the context of what was happening. There we read that one of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? <laughs> so it was obvious that, that Peter was was simply unable to escape the relentless finger-pointing of all of the people, all of this crowd gathered there in the courtyard. But you must remember that Jesus had promised that you're going to deny me three times. So all of this is part of God's sovereign plan. And at this point, we have two episodes of denial, one to go.
So Peter's original denial in response to the first slave girl's conspicuous curiosity continues to grow now into a furious denunciation as as he weaves a, a web of lies that eventually entangles him completely. Sound familiar? There is a sad progression here as I thought about these denials. It's interesting that first he responded with a casual denial. I don't know what you're talking about. Kind of a vague avoidance to kind of skirt the issue, you know, kind of get around it a little bit. One that would not wound his conscience as badly as an outright denial of my relationship with Jesus. You know, often we do the same thing, don't we? We, we, we just kind of commit a, a little sin. You know, it's, it's, it's just almost unnoticeable. Just a, just a little half-truth. That's going to be okay. It's all right to have just a, just a small kind of an innuendo of a compromise. I, I can live with that. My conscience can bear that. It, it's all right for me to have just a tiny little defection. Just a tiny glance or a tiny thought. But dear friends, as we look at Peter's life, and he's, even as we look at our own, you must understand that, that the leaven of sin never lies dormant. <laughs> the fermentation process doesn't just stop. It, it continues to grow. And so when you look at the second denial, you see that it has grown to an outright blatant denial. And then he accentuates that denial with an oath in verse 72. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. You see, now the metastasizing corruption of sin is consuming him like a fast-growing cancer. Until finally, the third denial in verse 74, he begins to curse and swear, I do not know the man. You see, here in the third denial, he literally repeats his second denial, once again affirming its veracity with an oath. In other words, God is my witness. But now he puts an exclamation mark on the end of his charade by pronouncing imprecations on himself. Kat anathematizane. Kai umnane, he's saying. If I'm lying, may God strike me dead and pour out his wrath upon me. His cursing here is not a reference to profanity, but rather invoking a curse upon himself. So in verses 74 and 75, at that point, immediately. A cock crowed. Isn't that fascinating? And according to Luke 22.60, the cock crowed, quote, while he was still speaking. In the middle of his statement, kat anathematizane, kai umnane, in the middle of that, the cock crows. And according to Mark 14.72, this was the second time it crowed. 
Now, folks, put yourself there. Imagine if you were Peter. Can you imagine the lump in Peter's throat? When during his self-imprecation, he is interrupted by the second crowing. And if that isn't enough, you must understand that also at that very moment, according to Luke's gospel in Luke twenty-two sixty-one, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. What a stunning scene of sin's consequences. Again, think of this. Wicked sinners standing around accusing a true disciple of being a friend of Jesus. And the true disciple vehemently denying it. And in the middle of the self-protective repudiation of the Savior, the lover of his soul looks away from the savagery that's being perpetrated upon him and peers into the disciple that he loves, catches his eye. I, I cannot imagine a, a more devastating look. To have the laser-like stare of omniscient holiness burn a hole of conviction right through my eyes and expose the secret caverns of wickedness in my heart. And as we would expect, at that very moment, Matthew tells us that Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said. Before a cock crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. It was now about 3 a.m. in the morning. That, as you will recall, is what they call cock crow. It was the beginning of the fourth watch of the night for the Jews. Jesus' prediction had now come true. Peter's heart is consumed with grief. He, dear friends, sowed the wind and he's now reaping the whirlwind. It's a fascinating scene to me, as well as heart-wrenching. And I have to say that it's a bit humorous as well as comforting to me as a preacher. Very humbling to know that God can use ignorant farm animals to preach powerful messages. He used Balaam's ass in the Old Testament. And now on this occasion, he uses the crowing of a rooster to preach the message. One that brought overwhelming conviction to Peter, which is always the proper response to failure. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now, having examined the actual historical account, I believe the Holy Spirit would have us, as I say, understand six things. Six stages of temptation and sin. Stages that we all encounter in our spiritual lives. Stages we must understand if we desire to stand firm against temptation. As with Peter, our proclivity to acquiesce to temptation often begins with, number one, spiritual pride. 
spiritual pride. This is the first stage. The one that we're all right now very confident we don't struggle with. Most Christians think of themselves as mature in Christ. You say, well, you know what? I I know I'm not mature in Christ. Well, I wonder how much you know that. If I were to say to you, dear brother or sister, I have seen a besetting sin in your life that really exposes your immaturity as a Christian. Would you kindly and quietly agree in humility? Or would you blast me with an instant defensive rebuttal? Ah, Pride is stronger than you thought, eh? Peter was convinced that he was invincible. He was naively overconfident concerning his devotion to Christ. And so much so that you will recall that he categorically dismissed the Lord's prediction that he would fall away from him that very night. The possibility of defection was absolutely ludicrous to him. In fact, in Luke twenty-two thirty-three, he said, Lord, with you I am ready to go both to prison and to death. And in verse 33 of Matthew 26, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Beloved, we must never be confident nor comfortable in our spirituality, but we must always be suspect of it. For indeed... We are far less mature than we think. We are far weaker than we think. We are far more needy than we think. Only a man who admits his frailty can be truly strong in the Lord. We must take to heart the text that I mentioned earlier in 1 Corinthians 10:12. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. By the way, on a positive note, digress for a moment. By God's grace, Peter learned this lesson, albeit he learned it the hard way. And in 2 Peter 3, beginning in verse 17, at the very end of his life, he later warned all of the saints, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your steadfastness but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We all need to take that verse and post it in a prominent place in our homes. So the first stage is spiritual pride, and it leads to the second stage, and that is a failure to count the cost of discipleship. Now, remember that Peter and the others believed only what they wanted to believe about Messiah and about the kingdom And although Jesus clearly prepared them for inevitable suffering, they chose instead to construct their own paradigm, their own little world in which they were going to live out their Christianity, one that met their needs, satisfied their pleasures, accomplished all their life's dreams and ambitions. They were all fighting to see who was going to be first in the kingdom when Jesus takes the throne. After all, I want what I deserve here. No thought of suffering for Christ. And certainly their paradigm did not include self-denial. 
It did not include taking up a cross and following Jesus. By the way, this is a reminder to me of the tragic danger of much of contemporary evangelicalism that preaches a counterfeit gospel, that preaches the smiley face Jesus or the Madison Avenue Jesus, that gospel of self-fulfillment, not a gospel of self-denial. You know the whole deal. Come to Jesus and He'll meet all your needs. He'll make you happy. He'll make you successful. He'll make you healthy. He'll make you wealthy. And on and on it goes. And therefore, many people profess a Jesus that doesn't exist. And with that warped perspective of the Christian life, with no grasp of the possibility of personal sacrifice, And the high cost of discipleship, not to mention no understanding of the infinite reward of faithful obedience and glory. They wander through life and with that distorted perspective, it is little wonder why so many professing Christians collapse in utter cowardice when they're called upon to share in the sufferings of Christ. Peter failed to take serious the Lord's teaching in Matthew 16, verse 24 through 26, where Jesus said, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. So often, spiritual compromise and defection And failure begins with spiritual pride. Secondly, there's a failure to count the cost of discipleship. And thirdly, there's a life of prayerlessness. This is the third stage leading to spiritual defection. Because after all, why pray when you're convinced you're spiritually invincible? You're depending upon your flesh, not the Lord. Why pray when the spiritual world that you have created, that you have conceived, is all about your needs rather than God's glory? All Peter could see was immediate blessing, imminent victory here, exaltation in the kingdom. So naturally, he disregarded the Lord's earlier admonition in verse 41 to keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Ha! My flesh isn't weak. Now, theirs may be, but mine isn't. I'm very aware of my own spiritual prowess. Besides, what could possibly go wrong I'm following Jesus now. And whatever comes along, I'm sure I can handle it. I would have you ask yourself about your own prayer life. What is it like? And what is the content of your prayers? Does it include a passionate plea for protection against temptation? Father, lead me not into temptation. Indeed, my spirit is willing, but Lord, I confess that my flesh is weak. 
I confess that I lack the level of maturity that I need to withstand the ingenious temptations of the evil one. Oh, Spirit of God, give me discernment. Help me to understand your word. Help me to be able to apply it to my life. I plead with you for spiritual growth and for protection. Because I acknowledge the profound weakness that is in my soul. Well, whenever I see Christians who do not have a disciplined prayer life, I instantly know that they are first of all proud. I also know that they do not understand the cost of discipleship. Therefore, they have a prayerless life. And then fourthly, that leads to that fourth stage that we see even with Peter, and that is an unteachable heart. You see, for this kind of a person, the word of the Lord really means nothing. And for this, these kind of people, there, there's, really no, there's really no passion. There's no appetite to hear the voice of the Lord and to say, Lord, how can I apply this to my life? This was what happened with Peter. Remember, Peter arrogantly challenged the Lord's prediction that he would deny him three times before the light of dawn. He also ignored the Lord's call to watch and pray. It's as if to say, Lord, I, I, I've got it here. I, I've got it under control. Frankly, I know more than you do about my spiritual condition. It's sad. I encounter unteachable hearts all the time as a pastor. So often people will hear something contrary to their preconceived self-serving agenda. They'll hear something that challenges perhaps their inflated opinion of themselves or, or, or some position that they have that may be biblically errant. And as soon as they hear anything from their pastor or from the word, and hopefully they will be one and the same, it is categorically dismissed and typically with defiance. Counsel is often met with instant ridicule and rejection. And that's what happened with Peter. You see, the reproof from the Lord was not something that he welcomed, but something that he resented. He had an unteachable heart. That's why we read that when Peter, when, I mean, when Jesus predicted his three denials, Peter kept saying insistently, the text says. He kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they were all saying the same thing. They're all chiming in. Oh, no, Lord, we're all strong here. It reminds me, by the way, of, of that text in... Uh, in James chapter 1, James said this, you know, my beloved brethren, but let everyone be quick to hear. That literally means you do everything you can to run to hear the word of God being taught and to apply it to your life. I want you to be quick to hear and slow to speak. That means slow to teach the word and slow to anger. The word for anger is a smoldering resentment. That smoldering resentment we have in our hearts because they're unteachable when we hear the word of God applied to some sin in our life and we just don't like it. 
We don't like the word. We don't like the messenger. We don't like the church. We don't like. And here we go. So he says, be quick to hear, slow to speak and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, he says, putting aside all filthiness. By the way, that term filthiness is a, was, a, was a reference to wax or dirt in a person's ears. Okay? I want you to unplug your ears here. Put aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. And in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word. And not merely hearers who delude themselves. Well, unteachable hearts do not heed that admonition. And that will move to a fifth stage, and that is an unsubmissive spirit. Keep in mind, when you're proud and you're naive about the cost of discipleship, and therefore, you really don't see any need to be praying about those matters and pleading with the Holy Spirit for discernment and strength to live out a life that is honoring to the Lord. Because after all, you've got it all under control. And also, you're an unteachable Christian and an unsubmissive Christian. Now, you're going to be like Peter who responded in the garden when the Lord said, I want you to keep watching and praying. What did Peter do in the guys? They went to sleep. Even hearing the Lord's loud crying as He's sweating drops of blood. Knowing as Jesus had told them that His soul is deeply grieved to the point of death, they still refused to obey Him. And they went to sleep. This is an unsubmissive spirit. He asked them to pray and to keep watch. You see, when you get to this stage, you'll find that you no longer seek godly counsel because you think you know it all. And when you do hear it, you resent it. Hey, leave me alone. I've got everything under control here. If I want your input, I'll ask for it. Thank you. And after all, nobody tells me what to do. And that finally leads to the sixth stage. Impetuous acts of defiance. Because of pride, refusal to count the cost, lack of prayer, an unteachable heart, an unsubmissive spirit. Peter merely responds in his flesh with acts of defiance, impetuous acts of defiance. He's controlled by his ego, not by the word of God through the power of the indwelling spirit of God. He's he's ruled by his emotions, not by a sound mind. And what does he do? Well, he contradicts the omniscient son of the living God. He disregards the clear commands of Almighty God. He, he refuses to understand the Lord's teaching on His death, on His burial, and His resurrection. And instead, when things go bad, He grabs a store, sword and He starts swinging, trying to kill people. 
And he flees from the mob like a coward. And then he slips into a courtyard and denies the Lord three times with oaths and swearing and self-imprecations, just as the Lord predicted. How typical of all of us. Ready, fire, aim. We react rashly to life ruled by our emotions rather than the mind of Christ because we have not spent time with the Lord in private communion pleading for His grace and His mercy and understanding the Word of God so that we can have the mind of Christ and live it out for our good and His glory. But dear friends, the story doesn't end here. Yes, he went out and he wept bitterly, but by God's grace... Those were bitter tears of repentance. And we know that he was forgiven. I think of Matthew 7:18. Who is a God like thee who pardons iniquity? And I rejoice that wherever there is confession, there will be forgiveness. And wherever there is forgiveness, there will be restoration. Isn't that wonderful? We can all rejoice in that. In fact, after Jesus had risen from the dead, he appeared to the disciples. We read about this in John 21. And even as Peter had denied the Lord three times, so three times Jesus asks Peter if he loved him. And three times Peter confessed that he did. But Peter's reply to the Lord in John 21 lacked the arrogance of his pre-denial bravado. It was very different. I think of it this way, that somehow the deep blades of failure had broken the hard ground of pride. And the, in the furrows, the seeds of humility had been planted, and now we begin to see the fruit of it. Because Peter's response to the Lord's three queries bore the undeniable marks of humility It's interesting when Jesus, and I'll just give you this briefly as we close, but this is such a, I think, a precious and a refreshing and a comforting reality to see what can happen when a sinner truly confesses their sin and God truly forgives them and restores them. When Jesus asked Peter if he loved them, Jesus used the word in the Greek, agape, a word that for love that denotes the supreme love of selfless sacrifice and and total commitment. Peter, do you love me that way? But it's interesting when you read Peter's response, Peter now being suspect of his spirituality, okay, suspect of his commitment, aware of his own weaknesses. He's reluctant to affirm that supreme love and selfless devotion. So instead... He responded with a different yet similar word for love that comes from phileo. And it denotes an affection for the Lord, but not that level of supreme love and devotion. And certainly, although it was truly the passion of Peter's heart to love the Lord with a supreme love and and with a selfless devotion, as, as his life later proved, His past denial and defection said otherwise. And so there's a wonderfully happy ending here because Peter confessed his sin and truly repented. His pride vanished in the presence of a newfound humility. And for this reason, Peter was able to lead the disciples 
and remained steadfast in his love for the Lord. And he served the Lord faithfully for 40 years, knowing that he would ultimately die on a cross as Jesus had promised him. So friends, I ask you in conclusion this morning to put yourself in Peter's place. Confess your spiritual pride. Learn to be suspect of your spirituality. Make sure that you count the cost of following Jesus. And if so, you'll never be surprised when you're asked to suffer for Him. And obey the Lord with a life of prayer, even though your spirit may be willing. Please understand that your flesh and my flesh is the problem. That's where the weakness is. And let's all make sure that we have a teachable heart and a submissive spirit. And as a result of our spiritual preparedness, we will avoid committing acts, impetuous acts of defiance. And instead, we will have a knee-jerk response uh, of godliness when things come our way. And finally, may we all, like Peter, acknowledge our deficient love for the Savior. Friends, it's not what it should be in my life nor in yours. Just think how we can prove that. So often our lack of love for one another is reflected in our unwillingness to be with others even within our own body. We live in our own private little communes, our own private little worlds. We never interact many times with other people even within our own church family. And yet we say we love Christ. Why don't we love His own? We don't love the lost like we should. After all, who wants to mix it up with them and suffer persecution? I'm too busy. My career, my family, my church ministry. Friends, we don't love Christ like we should. How seldom we long to speak with Him and commune with Him. How easy it is for us to be apart from Him and really never miss Him. So often the whole world is our priority rather than Christ. So may we acknowledge this deficiency in our life. Because quite frankly, the lower a man perceives his love for Christ, the higher it will be indeed. Let's pray. Father, thank You for these realities of Christian living that we can glean from this text. Thank You for Your infinite love for Peter and for all of us who have sinned so grievously in so many ways. Lord, thank You for the power of forgiveness and the joy of restoration. May it be the experience of all who are within the sound of my voice this day. We commit this word to Your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.